Before we partake of communion tonight, let's look at the Word of God for a few moments together. Exodus chapter 17 tonight. Turn it down just a bit. Exodus chapter 17. If you're using a Bible in front of you, you'll find it on page 80. pray together. Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, as I sit at your table, as we sit at your table, we are humbled before you. To understand and remember this tremendous sacrifice that you made, how you gave all for our salvation. Your blood was shed that our sins might be forgiven. You made a way. And Lord, we also sit at your table tonight and consider our ways, our lives. Lord, may we do uh, spiritual inventory tonight. Lord, just taking this evening as a a time to reevaluate priorities. Lord, speak to us through your word tonight. Challenge us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I was thinking it's kind of neat to be studying the book of Acts on Sunday morning and studying the book of Exodus on Wednesday night. In the book of Acts, we see a brand new church, the challenges of a new church, the organization of a new church. And in the book of Exodus, we see the beginning of a new nation, the challenges of a nation and the organization of a new nation. And they're very similar. They're parallel one another. And in both cases, we see the extremely great importance of God's people banding together. Look what happens with the nation of Israel, beginning in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 17. It says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So Israel is attacked. Amalek is the grandson of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob, who became Israel. And the descendants of Amalek are the Amalekites. And they are relatives of Israel, but they're not friendly. They don't get along. And for whatever reason, they decide that they're going to attack Israel there in the wilderness. Perhaps they were threatened in having two and a half million people in their part of the desert. Or they're protecting a water supply or whatever. Here come the Amalekites. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 25, looking back at this event, tells us that the Amalekites attacked Israel from the rear So we know that they targeted the people that were straggling along behind. So most likely the aged, the infirm, perhaps defenseless women and children in the back, the Amalekites attack. A big challenge, a big crisis. And you know, we've seen that in this brand new nation of Israel as we've been studying. One challenge after another. One battle after another. They are God's people. They have been redeemed. They are children of God. They're saved, if you will. And yet, as the redeemed people of God, they face one challenge after another. They're terrified at the Red Sea when the Egyptians come and appear to be trapping them. Then there's the lack of water and the lack of food. 
that we talked about last week. And now here we have the Amalekites battling them, attacking them, just one after another. By the way, you see that in the book of Acts with the church. The church is born, it grows, it's healthy. And then all the challenges, the attacks, one after another, government opposition like we talked about on Sunday, internal problems as we'll study. One after another, God's people, God's redeemed people are attacked. Now, when you became a Christian, I hope you didn't think that that guaranteed that life would become a walk in the park. Did anybody think, hey, if I come to Christ, peachy keen for the rest of life? Absolutely not. When you become a Christian, you actually join a war, spiritual warfare, and there's attack after attack after attack, trial after trial after trial, especially if as a Christian you really want to serve the Lord. The enemy will come against you. And so here come the Amalekites. Now, it's very interesting how they fight. Verse 9. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now this is a very interesting picture. Moses says to Joshua, you get some guys and you go out and you go to the battlefield and you start fighting the Amalekites. Moses goes up at the top of the mountain and he's surveying the battle. And what does he do? He raises his hands. He raises the rod. He's crying out to God in prayer on behalf of the people that are fighting. Well, how many of you can hold up your hands for a long period of time holding a rod? You get, you get tired, don't you? And so he would hold them up and then he would lay them down for time. And he noticed something, that whenever he had his hands up, the Israelites were winning. And whenever the hands came down, the Amalekites started to win. So Aaron and Hur are up there, and they say, we better do something. So they prop Moses up, and each of them get on either side, and they're holding Moses' hands up in a constant offering and cry out to God, for victory. And that's how the Amalekites are defeated. And this is a beautiful picture of God's people banding together, cooperating with one another, functioning in the roles that God has placed them in the midst of battle. It's really interesting to me, this picture. Most of the people are out on the battlefield fighting, right? Most of the nation. The spiritual leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Hur, are at the top. Are they fighting in the hand-to-hand? No, they're praying. They're praying for those that are battling on the battlefield. And it's through that that there's victory. I think that picture is still valid today for the church. And understand that this might be a paradigm shift in your thinking when it comes to church. You know, a lot of Christians, when they come to church, they think that the pastor 
or the spiritual leaders of the church, they're the fighters, that they're the warriors. Not true. You're the fighters. You're the fighters. You're the ones out there in this community, in your jobs, working nine to five, in your school, in community, literally doing hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. You're the one that's witnessing out there within the everyday part of life. It is the battlefield. Spiritual leaders, our job is to equip the members of the church to go out and fight in this community. Spiritual leaders, and and oftentimes I've said this of myself, I see myself more as the equipment manager. I'm the water boy. When we gather together at church, it's like a huddle. And my job is to be praying for you and to be doing everything I can to build you up in the power of the Spirit through the Word of God so that you're equipped to go out there and be effective witnesses for Christ. That's the picture here. And i got to tell you, it's, uh, it was something that was hard for me to really swallow when I first became a full-time pastor at a church. You know, before I was a pastor at a church, I was an engineer. I was working nine to five. I was, and I was dealing with unbelievers all the time. And I remember that. And I remember I had all these unbelievers, all these people's lives that I could witness to. And I loved that. I loved how God would use me in the day-to-day, and and, and really many, many people came to Christ, as I would share. When I became a pastor, I left that scene. I no longer deal with non-believers all the time. Now I deal with believers. It is kind of funny sometimes. And I kind of miss being out there and interacting with the non-believers. But really, God has called me in my role now to work with Christians. You're on the battlefield. Do you understand that, my brother and sister in Christ? You're in the fight. God has called you to be out there to minister, to fight. Kim and I have missed that. I mean, a lot of times you think, man, so what Kim and I have done, we still try to keep our lives involved through friends of our family, through our kids, through various sports teams that they've been on, or maybe activities at school. And, And I think every Christian should have that outlet where you're working and you try to be a good witness with people outside the church. But that's what you're called to do almost full time. It's a beautiful picture. Everyone in the fight. Everyone banding together. Every Christian impacting their sphere of influence. God will bring great victory. This is also a wonderful picture of the importance of prayer, don't you think? How important is prayer? Isn't this a literal picture of how important prayer is? If you want victory in your life, you must pray. When God's people are praying, there's victory. When God's people are not praying, what happens? There's defeat. Victorious church is a praying church. A victorious Christian family is a praying family. Victorious Christian is a praying Christian. I'll never forget that. Very, very important picture. Look what the Lord tells Moses to do after this victory. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name The Lord is my banner. 
For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, now, I wouldn't want to be an Amalekite, would you? The Amalekites would be enemies of God's people, and and they would be eventually wiped out and judged. But I love what Moses does here after this victory. He puts an altar up, sacrifices to the Lord, and calls this altar, the Lord is my banner. I love it. What's a banner? When we say Jehovah Nisi, Yahweh Nisi, that means the Lord is my banner. What are we saying? A banner is a military insignia. Did you know that? It's a piece of cloth bearing an army insignia and raised on a pole. You could think of a banner as a flag. And the banner was carried around by the leader of the army and the soldiers. And and, and soldiers would always look for their banner on the battlefield. When you saw your banner on the battlefield, you found your bearing on the battlefield. You knew that you were still fighting. There was hope. There was motivation. There was encouragement. You look to the banner, and that's where you find your identity. That's where you find your security. That's where you find your courage. Moses and the nation of Israel learned during that battle with the Amalekites. You know, the Lord is our banner. The Lord is our flag. The Lord is our motivator. The Lord is our courage. Beautiful picture. Okay, look what happens in chapter 18. says, and Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons, with her. Now, do you remember that Moses was a married man? Moses was married and he had two sons. When he spent 40 years in exile in the land of Midian, he met his wife, Sipporah, and they had two sons. And his father-in-law is this guy named Jethro, who was the priest of Midian. Now, when Moses was called to go to Egypt and to be used by the Lord to deliver his people from Egypt... He originally brought his wife and two sons with him, but there was some kind of an argument over circumcision. There was an issue. And so Moses sent his wife and two sons back to the land of Midian to be with Jethro, and then the events that take place in delivering Israel out of Egypt take place. So now, after all of those events, Jethro, the father-in-law, has found out And now he's bringing his daughter and his two grandsons back to Moses. And I think that's really, really awesome. A father-in-law making sure the marriage of his daughter gets reconciled. I think that's a great example. I think his parents... With kids that are married, we should do everything we can to make sure that they get reconciled. You know, if you have a daughter who leaves her husband and comes hangs out at your house, mom and dad, 
You should do everything you can to get them back together, as is appropriate. Jethro does that. Now, I want you to notice something about Jethro. In verse 1, it says he is the priest of Midian. He was the priest of Midian, and he still is the priest of Midian. So Jethro is not a believer yet. He believes in false gods. But that's going to change. Check out verse 7. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Now, this is beautiful. This is like Moses witnessing to his father-in-law. This is Moses sharing salvation with his father-in-law who is not yet saved. Verse 9. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Check this out. Now I what? Know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behave proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering, And other sacrifices to offer to God. Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, I believe that Jethro got saved in the Old Testament way of salvation. I believe that Jethro came to put his faith in Yahweh, in Jehovah. He came to know the Lord. He begins to offer sacrifices. The elders come and eat with Jethro, welcoming him into the community of faith. That's awesome. Leading your father-in-law to salvation. I think... That one of the biggest challenges for Christians is dealing with unsaved family members. Or being concerned for unsaved family members. And many of you may be in that position tonight. Maybe you're married to a spouse who has not yet come to Christ. And it's frustrating. And you're concerned. Maybe you have sons or daughters that have not yet come to Christ. Maybe you have in-laws. Maybe you have a father-in-law who hasn't come to Christ yet. Parents. That is such a hard place, isn't it? Because it's frustrating because you're all enthusiastic about Jesus. And maybe you got saved and you ran home and you told everyone about Jesus. And they're like, huh? They're not as enthused. And maybe even they think you're a little bit off your rocker. And oh, how that hurts. And oh, how in agony you wish that your loved one would come to know Christ. You wish that your father-in-law, like Moses, you wish you'd be able to lead that special loved one in your life to Christ. There's a lot of Christians that are in that boat. Avoid making a really big mistake. Don't be too pushy. Don't be too preachy. 
Don't come home and with all your zeal, tell them how utterly wrong they are. Don't bombard them with CDs and Christian books and sermons. I knew one lady who so desperately wanted her husband to get saved that every time she got out of the car, she made it was sure that the radio was tuned into a preaching and she'd blast it. So every time, every time this poor guy turned on his car, a sermon, a preacher at him. Or always having the TV tuned into a Christian broadcast or something like that. You know, that's not going to work. You have to be very, very patient. I love what Moses did with his father-in-law. It says Moses saw Jethro coming and he went out to him, right? Kneeled before him, kissed him, showed him respect. Went out to his father-in-law, gave him the respect, invited him into the tent. Usually in those days, if you were a great man, you sat in your tent and you waited for people to come into your tent to come talk to you. Moses at this point was a great man, but he got out of his tent. He went out and he showed his father-in-law great respect. Brought him into the tent. Respectfully shared the faith. You have to be respectful. You have to be patient. You can't go in there and clobber them with Bible verses. They need to see a difference. There was a husband and wife who had never been very religious, but one day at work, someone said something to the man about Jesus, and he said, that's it. That's exactly what I need. Within days, he became a Christian. But he knew that if he told his wife about it, she would think he was out of his mind. So he said, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to love her with this new love that I have from God. This proved to be exactly the right thing to do. She noticed the difference almost immediately, and soon God opened her heart to receive the gospel. I think that's one of the best things. Love your unbelieving spouse with the new love that you've found in God. Love your parents with that new love. Love your kids with that new love. Show them, a, show them the changed you. And as you have opportunity, certainly share the gospel. Certainly share their story. But be smart about it. Be discreet. Listen to the timing of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's another strategy that I often uh, tell folks that are struggling with this. A lot of times it's really hard for a close family member to believe what's, what's happened to you. They, oh, another phase. Now you're going through the religious phase. And a lot of times it's going to take a long, long, long time of, 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 of showing this, this constant change in your life. So you've got to be patient. But there's something else you can do. You can pray that one of their friends gets saved. Pray that their partner gets saved. I mean, pray for that and fast for that. Pray that somebody comes from out of nowhere, suddenly becomes friends, and leads that person to Christ. Keep praying. Keep loving. Stay patient. I believe the Lord is going to save our loved ones. If we just stay persistent, keep praying. The father-in-law, the priest of Midian, got saved. Now, I love that Jethro got saved because I love the advice that he gives to Moses. I love this passage. Look at it. Verse 13. 
And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit? And all the people stand before you from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Now, talk about an overwhelming workload. Here we get insight into how Moses spent his days. He's the leader of two and a half million people. Think of all the logistics that you're dealing with day by day. Water, food, all the various things that you would have to deal with. And think of all the problems that would surface with two and a half million people. Think of all the fights. Think of all the disputes. Think of all the issues that would have to be solved. And Moses initially is taking care of all these cases. There he sits. He gets up every morning at 8. He's sitting there at the counseling And all day long, he's hearing people's problems. And people are lined up. Talk about judicial backlog, right? And his father-in-law says, hey, what's this all about? And Moses says, well, they come to me. I'm the man of God. I teach I instruct, I counsel all these people. And Moses probably even thought he might be impressing his father-in-law. Look at all these people. They come to see me. Is Jethro impressed? Verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you... And these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. This thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Moses, you're overworked. This is way too much. And, and the people, they're going to they're gonna burn out. You're going to burn out. Way, way too much going on. There's an old Greek motto that says, you will break the bow if you keep it always bent. And that is absolutely true. This is not right, he says. So look at his advice, verse 19. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. In other words, Moses, keep doing what you're doing, but, verse 21, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you. They will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all the people will also go to their place in peace. Moses, delegate. Moses, distribute the load. Raise up leaders. Raise up men who are able. Raise up men of God who fear God. Raise up men of truth. Raise up men who are not given over to covetousness, so they're not going to take bribes in anybody's case. Raise up good, godly, qualified leaders over a thousand, 
over hundreds, over fifties, over tens. Listen, Moses, share the work. Share the load. Beautiful. Perfect. So Moses, verse 24, heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart. I love that. Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Perfect. Beautiful picture of God's people banding together. All the work that needs to be done is too much for just one, two, or three. Distribute the load. Same thing happens in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 6, the church has grown. There's all kinds of people. Lots of things are happening. And there's a dispute among widows. Widows are being slighted at the table. They have a ministry where they're helping out widows. And there's an argument among the widows. And everybody comes to the leaders of the church and say, help us. you got to do something. And here's what the leader said. It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Spread it out. Be involved. Get others involved. Still true. There is so much work to be accomplished in any local church. There is so much need. There is so much ministry that needs to happen. And that work has to be distributed. Amen? It has to be shared. Some churches, I think, get out of balance because they let, like, the main pastor do everything. And you shouldn't let the main pastor do everything. You're going to burn the poor guy out. And also, understand this. The New Testament is crystal clear. We all have gifts. We all have callings. We all have a place to function in the body of Christ. Whether it be administrative or teaching or serving behind the scenes or being involved in evangelistic outreaches, discipleship, there's a lot of work and we've all got a place. So when one or two people try to take all of that responsibility, and some people do that out of pride. Hey, I got all the answers. No, you shouldn't. You're ripping off other people in the body of Christ from using their gifts. Using their talents. It's a corporate Effort, And I really want you to think about that tonight, my brother and sister in Christ. Are you involved in your church? Are you involved in the work of the Lord? There's so much opportunity to be a part. There have been times where a Christian will come up to me, somebody at the church will be here, hey, I see a need, Pastor. This is a big need. Somebody needs to meet this need. 
Pastor, I think you should meet this need. Why don't you meet the need? I mean, look at the discernment God gave you to identify the need. Right? Look at what the Lord's doing in your heart. Look how the Lord's moving you towards identifying a need in the body. Perhaps God would like you to be a part of the solution. Christianity is not a spectator sport. I think a lot of times we forget that. Like I said, in our text, I see a total paradigm shift in thinking about church. There's a wonderful story about a guy named Herman Ostry. He had a barn, lived in Bruno, Nebraska, and his barn floor was under 29 inches of water because of a raising creek. This guy invited a few friends to a barn raising. Literally, he needed to move his entire 17,000-pound barn to a new foundation more than 143 feet away. His son, Mike, devised a lattice work of steel tubing and nailed, bolted, and welded it on the inside and the outside of the barn. Hundreds of handles were attached. After one practice lift, 344 volunteers slowly walked the barn up a slight incline, each supporting less than 50 pounds. In just three minutes, the barn was on its new foundation. The body of Christ can accomplish great things when we work together. You guys know I'm an engineer, so I always like to do math. 17,000-pound barn. 344 people show up. Each is responsible for 50 pounds. Okay, let's say 244 people show up. 70 pounds. Let's say 172 people show up. Each one then has to carry 100 pounds. The less participation, the harder it is for those who participate. The more participation, the easier it is for everyone who participates, and you get more done. Banding together, working together. Think about that. You know, every time... I sit at the communion table. It's sort of like raising the banner. I, I think it's neat that we saw the Lord as my banner tonight. Because every time we are get together as a family at the communion table, we literally, we're, we're raising the banner of the cross. We're remembering what Christ did for us. We're remembering his great love for us. Don't you love that verse? His banner over me is love. All that Christ did. He loved us. He sacrificed his life for us. He called us to himself. He saved us. He washed away our sins. He leads the way. Let's raise that banner tonight. And let's take some time tonight at the table to evaluate our lives. You know, maybe you're here tonight and you've, you've been off the battlefield for a long time. Or you have kind of been out of service for a long time. Or maybe you're a Christian and you've been sort of rebelling against the Lord. Right now, come and resurrender your life. Recommit your life. You may be here tonight and you've never received Christ. Let's get that right tonight. Why don't we bow our heads, close our eyes. We can turn the lights down. Let's have some guys come up to help me.
Awesome. Let's go into a time of, of prayer. Just a few moments, we're going to distribute these elements and let them remind you of how much Christ loves you and what he's done for you. If you've wandered away from Christ, I'd like to invite you back tonight. He'll take you back. He'll restore you. Be reminded this evening of the cross and all that he's done for you and all that he wants to do through you in the lives of other people. Are you in the fight? Ask the Lord for strength tonight. Maybe there's a family member who is definitely on your heart tonight. This person doesn't know the Lord. Cry out to God on his behalf or her behalf tonight. Maybe you're here tonight and you have not yet received Christ. You know, listen, everyone has a banner. Everyone has a banner. Everyone has something in life where they look to for security, for identity. What's your banner? I hope it's not some politician or money or something that this world might offer you. Those things will fail you. Jesus won't. Let him be your banner. If you've yet to ask him to be your savior, I want to lead you in a prayer. And you do that right now. And then partake of communion with us. To say, Lord Jesus, I do thank you for your blood. that was poured out on that cross for my sins. Wash away all my sins. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Make me a member of your family. Fill me with your spirit and show me, Lord, right where I fit in your work how you want me to serve you. Keep these elements in your hands. We'll take, we'll partake of them together corporately. Um, Worship the Lord. Thank him for what he's done. Meet with him individually. Lord, thank you for giving us this ordinance. Thank you for giving us this tangible way to remember regularly the tremendous sacrifice that you paid. And Lord, bring us back to 
to front and center. We're reminded of all that you've done for us. We thank you for the tremendous sacrifice that was made for us. We're so grateful. And Lord, use this time to, uh, to lead us, to direct us in the choices that we make with our lives. The decisions that we make day by day. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our lives. You're worthy of our service. You're worthy of anything that you would ask for us to do. Praise your name. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together, remembering his sacrifice. In the same manner, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take, let's remember. For often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Amen. Let's stand. Lord, join us together in harmony and unity. Lord, I pray that um, you would do great things through this church, through all the churches represented here in El Paso and around the world. Father, I pray that we would join together, that we would... All of us find our spots and faithfully serve. Lord, I pray that many, many, many people would come into your kingdom. Start with us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.